This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number 11, recorded on July 1st, 2011. I'm Tim Kripe, your host from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, along with my co-host, Lars Wagner. Welcome again, Lars. Thanks, Tim. And today we have a special colleague with us from Cincinnati, Dr. Brian Weiss. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you, Tim. So Brian is one of our experts in uh, neuroblastoma, runs our neuroblastoma program, as well as an expert in tumors associated with neurofibromatosis as part of one our solid tumor group. Uh, today we wanted to talk about uh, the most recent meeting that occurred uh, in the field, that is the American Society of Clinical Oncology Meeting, or ASCO, which occurred in Chicago uh, last month and uh, had several seminal discussions or findings or presentations there that had to do with pediatrics. I guess the first most in- interesting uh, event was the fact that a pediatric oncologist was recently elected as president of ASCO, Michael Link. I could be wrong, but I believe that's the first time a pediatric oncologist has led this esteemed society, and I'm hoping that uh, there may be more pediatric-related initiatives come out of that, and perhaps we'll be able to get him on our podcast in the future to talk about that. Another uh, event that happened was Dr. Lee Hellman from the National Cancer Institute was giving the pediatric Oncology Award, uh, and Lee, as you guys know, has done a lot of seminal work in sarcomas and looking at n- novel targets and done a lot of translational work in that area, including some interesting uh, work that he presented on uh, reviving some old drugs for this disease. Uh, we've talked before in some other episodes about drug repurposing or repositioning, uh, especially with the itraconazole episode uh, and inhibiting hedgehog signaling. But uh, this is basically drug reviving, taking a, a drug that's not been used for anything and discovering it had some new pro- some properties that were unanticipated. So that's very interesting, and congratulations again to Dr. Hellman. The project that got the most press uh, came from a presentation by Ruth Leidenstein of St. Anna Children's Hospital and Research Institute in Austria regarding different uh, choices for preparative regimens for bone marrow transplant with patients with neuroblastoma. There were certainly a lot of press releases and news articles written and, and discussions surrounding this abstract, so I thought it was appropriate that we take a minute to discuss that. So, Brian, would you mind summarizing a bit what she presented? Sure, Tim. Um, so, Dr. Ladenstein uh, presented for the European group the results of their trial. They had an early analysis uh, of their trial, which basically in a number of different countries took about 1,500 patients and gave them the same induction. This was a different induction than we use in this country. Um, That was a lot more uh, cisplatin and carboplatin in induction. Uh, We use um, cisplatin only in two cycles, and they got significantly bigger doses in their induction. And then only about uh, a third of the patients that were in induction met their 
qualifications to be randomized, and they basically have to um, have a very good response to induction. They were only allowed to have three MIBG avid lesions left at the end of induction to get randomized. And they randomized those 500 or so patients to either transplant with the same transplant regimen we use, what we call CEM with carboplatin, etoposide, and melphalan, or to a transplant regimen with melphalan and busulfan, what they call bumel. Um, and then those patients were followed for several years afterwards, and they looked at toxicity with the two different regimens. And what they found is um, a three-year event-free survival rate, which means uh, three years without relapse, uh, the three-year event-free survival rate was significantly higher for those patients that got UML than for those patients that got CEM. And for patients with stage 4 disease, for instance, about 43%, um, so close to 4 out of 10 patients that got UML uh, were still alive without relapse three years later, were only about 29% of those that got CEM, so about two or three out of 10 patients that got CEM were alive without relapse. So um, because of those results, uh, we're sort of looking at what to do in the future with patients with neuroblastoma in this country. Um, they also found, interestingly, that patients had a lot less toxicity with BUMEL um, except the liver disease, which we call either veno-occlusive disease or sinusoidal obstructive syndrome. Um, those are the same thing. It's a problem you get with your liver where you get little small clots in your liver, and it can be fatal in transplant. That was significantly more common with BML than with CEM, but all the other toxicities like stays in the ICU and infection and things like that were less common with BML. Than with CEM. These results were uh, sort of groundbreaking in the sense that they lent some credence to possibly changing our current consolidation, which is what we've been using in the COG for a decade or so. Um, and there are some, some fine points, though, as to why the Children's Oncology Group isn't immediately switching to BML. Um, so those are mostly centered on the fact that uh, there are, it's a different induction regimen that the patients in Europe get than the patients in this country get. And their induction regimen has a lot more platin drugs, which carboplatin in the CEM is a platin drug also. So it's possible that um, while Bumel was better in a head-to-head -head comparison with C, then CEM, when you give a lot of platinum induction, that if we did the same study with our induction, there may be no advantage. Um, Isn't our induction less intense, though? Our induction is less cycles, and um, therefore could be viewed as less intense. But we also have a better, if you look at our three-year EFS rate with CEM compared to their three-year EFS rate with CEM, Ours is significantly better. So ours is about 46% and theirs is about 
3%. And that would put it on par with their Bumel. Exactly. Or, yeah. And, and the difference that they saw between their two groups, um, you know, people that are listening aren't looking at these graphs, but it's not like one group was totally cured. I mean, both of these right. curves still continue to, to drop, unfortunately, fairly rapidly in the first couple of years after transplant. And the curve spread, um, a bit and obviously statistically, but it's not, it's, you know, would you sort of call this a base hit rather than a home run sort of thing? I think that's a good analogy. Um, there was a statistical difference. It wasn't an enormous difference. That difference was borne out by the number of patients, you know, 250 patients or so on each arm. So uh, the greater the difference, the less patients it takes to show that difference. In this case, it took a lot of patients to show this statistical difference. And granted, we'll take all we can get in this disease. Every exactly. incremental advance is worth it. Um, it counts, but um, I don't want to leave the impression for the, for the listeners that we're talking a huge difference. And, and what you're saying is that some of the, this difference, and maybe all of it, could be accounted for, we may already be at that level, that exactly. GML level here in this country. Okay, the COG has taken the view on this that it bears looking at more in the future. We have a pilot for high-risk disease that's due to open in the next few months. Um, that pilot will be run out of Cincinnati, and there's uh, 12 other centers that are going to be part of the pilot. And basically, patients on the pilot will get the same, more or less the same induction as they do now in the COG, uh, with one cycle less of therapy. But then everybody will get MIBG therapy uh, at the end of induction, and uh, then we'll go on to Bumel transplant. So the reason we're doing this pilot is both to look at the feasibility of giving MIBG therapy to, to people even in centers that don't do MIBG, and those patients will have to travel to another center, but also to get some toxicity data on Bumel after our induction um, with MIBG. So we already have a lot of toxicity data looking at CEM after our induction with MIBG, and this will be a way to try to determine uh, as the data matures, which one to go with for the next big phase three uh, trial that's we're currently in the planning stages of. So there's certainly been patients that have gotten transplant and gotten MIBG therapy. Mm -hmm. And now the difference for this trial is that you're going to basically purposely combine the two in a short time frame, see if you can maximize on the efficacy of both. The trial does a couple of uh, newish things. So... Uh, we There isn't a long track record of MIBG and Bumel transplant. There's a long track record of MIBG and CEM transplant. Uh, certainly some other centers, mostly in Europe, have combined either MIBG with Bumel in small patient numbers or other radiopharmaceuticals uh, with Bumel for other types of diseases, uh, and the toxicity was acceptable. So we're looking at we're looking at those two therapies together. And we're looking at Bumel after neuroblastoma or using R induction, which has not been done before. Um, and then, like I said, the feasibility just the feasibility of shuttling a patient from you know South Carolina to Cincinnati and back to get their transplant um, hasn't been done outside of the NANT. So. This will be uh, the first time the COG has done 
a trial like that. And the NAMP being the New Agents for Neuroblastoma Therapy Consortium. Correct. And we, um, in fact, had Bob Seeger on a previous episode, the most recent episode, in fact, uh, talking a little bit about that. That was episode 10. The um, trial that you're going to be running, uh, you mentioned MIBG. Can we back up just a minute, discuss MIBG a bit, uh, what it stands for, how it came to be? What that, you know, It's one of those things that originally was a diagnostic test and now is a therapeutic, so it's quite sure. interesting. MIBG stands for meta-iodobenzoguanidine, and as you mentioned, it's a um, compound that has no effect on neuroblastoma by itself. It binds to most but not all neuroblastoma cells. Uh, about 9 out of 10 patients will have the receptor or protein on their cell that lets the MIBG bind to it. And what they can do is take the iodo part of MIBG and switch that for a radioactive iodine. What that allows us to do is have the tumor cells themselves take up this compound that has uh, a radioisotope in it, meaning the cell is getting some radiation from inside. And initially in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was used only for diagnosis at a very low dose. Uh, so you could give a couple of millicuries to a patient and you could see all the places where the tumor was. But starting in the mid, 80, mid to late 80s, uh, people started using it for therapy by giving a much higher dose. So instead of a couple of millicuries, we use a couple hundred millicuries of um, MIBG. And essentially, you're radiating the tumor from the inside. And we know we can get much higher doses, uh, sometimes, you know, five times or more higher than you could get with external beam radiation, which is the kind of radiation everybody gets as part of their uh, neuroblastoma therapy, where the camera is outside the patient and is giving a radiation dose through the skin to the tumor. You can get much higher doses giving MIBG into a vein that then circulates in the body and binds to neuroblastoma cells than you can with a camera. It's an awesome concept. So it's it is a great concept, and it does have a and it does have very high efficacy. Meaning, as a single agent, it works much better for neuroblastoma uh, than any other single agent we have. But it's not a cure by itself, and so we're hoping uh, to date. MIBG therapy has been used for patients who have already relapsed typically or have had a very bad response to induction. Um, and those patients, it can often uh, make the tumor stop growing, sometimes shrink the tumor, but it rarely by itself is a cure. We're hoping by moving it up into the therapy or instead of waiting for patients to relapse, we give patients MIBG therapy at the end of induction that we can actually improve the cure rate. That actually is going to take a very large phase three randomized trial, meaning you take, you know, 500 patients and half of them get MIBG plus transplant and the other half get just transplant and you see which one uh, cures more patients. Our hope is that MIBG will cure more patients, um, but that's going to take a while. Um, so what we're doing that's relatively new, as I mentioned, is using MIBG up front, and we're going to be giving 
the pilot trial will only include patients whose tumors take up MIBG, which is, like I said, most patients, but not all, and only those patients who present at one of the pilot sites. Um, and everybody will get MIBG as part of their induction therapy at the end of induction as long as they're not progressing. So even those patients who don't have MIBG avidity at the end of induction, we know their tumor takes up MIBG. We've done a MIBG scan at the beginning of induction. We've given them high-dose chemotherapy and done surgery. And even those patients that are technically a complete response at the end of induction will still get MIBG therapy. And our reason for doing that is that we have a lot of experiential data that patients who are a complete response using a diagnostic MIBG scan, which I mentioned you get a couple of millicuries of MIBG, when we do a post-therapy MIBG scan, which is basically using that several hundred millicurie dose of MIBG we've given therapy, and then you have them lay on the table and, and take a couple of pictures, we'll see disease where there was no disease in the diagnostic scan. And so our thought is even those patients that are technically a CR may not be a true CR, and MIBG can benefit them too. And what are some of the long-term risks of um, MIBG therapy? Well, that's a good question. MIBG is very well tolerated, and we know the dose-limiting toxicity is um, hematopoietic, meaning patients often need to get transfusions, sometimes need to get stem cells, their own stem cells, back to help their blood-forming cells repopulate after MIBG. And it's about, you know, a third of patients after our normal big dose of MIBG will need to get their stem cells back. Um, the long-term toxicities can be uh, thyroid problems because the iodine can also be taken up by the thyroid. So some patients end up with hypothyroidism and need to take a thyroid supplement. Uh, there is a low risk, like with all radiation and um, chemotherapy drugs, of the potential for secondary malignancies, meaning cancers or leukemias caused by the therapy. We don't know what part of that MIBG plays. We know that high-dose cancer, cancer drugs like cyclophosphamide can cause secondary leukemias, and we're not sure what part of that MIBG places. Those are probably the two biggest risks. Sure. And giving it twice, obviously, is probably going to increase the risk of that, but right. hopefully worth it in terms of right. efficacy. Now, giving MIBG twice is a topic of a paper that recently came out in the journal Pediatric Blood and Cancer uh, from the group in Philadelphia. Uh, is this something that you mentioned it's a, as a single agent, one, uh, a one-time dose? This is one of our most potent Giving it twice, obviously, we like to give treatments multiple times. Is that something that's been used much, and um, it's what you're going to be doing in this study? Is there enough data to use that comfortably? Well, the study the study only gives it once, and then follows that six weeks later with transplant. But um, we do use MIBG uh, more than once if there is at least stable disease or a res or a response. I think that's commonly done by uh, several centers. I think this paper that you mentioned does present the data in a very um, 
coherent and concise way because most of us are doing uh, are treating these patients not being on an official trial we're just using the drug sort of at a compassionate use basis so um, if I can go over a little bit about what the yeah if you'd like to summarize this you know it's funny sure. because transplants started out a single transplant now we're doing tandem or double right you know t transplants and MIBG I think started out as a single therapy now we're doing double or tandem MIBG so this paper by First author, Kelsey Johnson, um, out of the, the CHOP group, uh, Safety and Efficacy of Tandem, I-131, Meta-Iodo-Benzoguanidine Infusions in Relapse-slash-Refractory Neuroblastoma. I'm not sure it's in print yet. It's been uh, released online, but so it's a relatively recent report. So, yeah, if you could summarize it for us. Sure. Great. So the, the CHOP group um, collected data for about four years, between 2005 and 2009, on patients that were treated with high-dose MIBG, and all of those patients, unlike the pilot, in which patients will be treated uh, during their first sort of group of therapy, during induction, the first time they've gotten any chemo, um, these patients are all either progressed at the end of induction, didn't respond to induction therapy, or, you know, responded but then relapsed later. So they were a higher risk group of patients. And they treated about 76 patients uh, with high-dose MIBG. And of those 76, about a third had some response, some response, which is not the same as a cure. Often uh, it means just less MIBG added spots on an MIBG scan after the therapy than before the therapy. Some people had a complete response, uh, only about five patients, so less than one in ten had all the spots go away. Again, those patients were cured. They just had a very good response to MIBG. And then of the 76, about half had stable disease. So there's MIBG scan at the end of induct, at the end of MIBG therapy, and they imaged them about six to eight weeks after their therapy, looked the same as the MIBG scan before MIBG therapy. So then they took those patients, and there were 60 patients total who either had a response or stable disease, and then there were another 16 patients that progressed. Those patients weren't eligible to get a second treatment, but the 60 patients that had either a response or stable disease were eligible. And of those 60, 41 got a second treatment. And of those 41, about a third had a response again, and about, you know, a little bit more than a third had stable disease again. And it, the interesting thing about that is, of the 24 patients who had stable disease after their first therapy and went on to get a second therapy, four of them then had uh, a partial response to the second therapy, and about half of them had stable disease still, and about a third of them had progressive disease after the second therapy. So it does lend some evidence that it might be worthwhile giving a second therapy to a patient with stable disease, because sometimes people still respond. Again, it's a situation where we sort of take what we can get. Take what we can get, exactly. Um, looking at the, the toxicity, you know, the main thing was, like I mentioned, uh, transfusions, tr transfusions and the need for stem cells. So after the first therapy, about 
20% needed to get stem cells reinfused, and after the second therapy, about 85%. So almost everybody needed to get stem cells infused. And that's not surprising, um, given that that's the dose-limiting toxicity for that therapy. The other interesting thing this trial showed was that they looked at the patients, the five patients I mentioned who had a complete response to the first therapy. Um, after the second therapy, they looked at their post-therapy, immediate post-therapy scan. So again, patients got the therapy. They had a couple of days after the therapy would be put on the the scanning table and get a quick picture using the therapeutic dose. And then six to eight weeks later, they would get a true MIBG diagnostic scan using just a few millicuries of MIBG. So on that post-therapy scan, all the patients that had a complete response to the first therapy had disease they could see on the immediate post-therapeutic scan. Again, lending some evidence to our idea of treating everybody, even those that are CR to induction, with MIBG therapy, but they may still gain benefit. So this paper gives some uh, credence to your, your planned clinical trial coming up. Yes. Uh, and the combination of the use of bone marrow transplantation with MIBG therapy and using both of them basically to the maximum that we think is feasible. And that's why it's a pilot study to make sure that that's a reasonable thing that patients will tolerate. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, great. Um, Malars, do you have any questions about the, his study or the, these, these reports? Yeah. I, Ron, I just wanted to follow up with one question about the report that was given at ASCO on the busulfan and melphalan uh, conditioning regimen. Because I think when people read those headlines, they look at this study as a win-win, that it's, it's more effective in treating the cancer and it's even less toxic, at least in some regards. So I think um, if you just read the article, it seems like, well, why wouldn't we be doing this with everyone? And I understand the children's oncology group is not ready to um, change the way we're currently treating these patients. But what, um, what would you recommend, for example, for a patient that's not being treated on a particular protocol um, that the parents come to you and say, hey, can we do this Bumel induction regimen because we heard that it was better? That's a great question. Uh, and I think the problem is right now in July of 2011, we don't know enough about what the the response rate or toxicity of Bumel after our induction is to, to recommend Bumel for the average high-risk neuroblastoma patient on that's being treated sort of as per a study but not on a study. Because it's possible that uh, with more maturation of the data uh, or possibly with a phase three study that COG is able to conduct, we'll learn that Bumel isn't any better than CEM with our induction, or that Bumel is actually significantly more toxic with our induction. I think we just don't know enough to be able to recommend that, even for patients not on study. Um, and, you know, I think I mentioned the number of patients that went on to be randomized is eye-opening to those of us who, who do clinical trials in this country. If we had a trial where only a third of the patients went on to be randomized to the actual question, that would probably be closed 
uh, it's it was a very defined population of patients that that got included in their study. So patients, you know, there's there's patients with significantly more MIBG Abbott spots that go on to transplant on the COG trial than just three. Um, so we don't know what the response rate is in those patients either. I think we'll know more, you know, what I've told people is we'll know more um, when the pilot gets done. Uh, at least we'll know more about the toxicity of UML after our induction. And we may know more about the response rate, although it'll be, you know, that usually takes years to really get that answer nailed down. Good. Great. Um, a couple of last questions for you just to give our listeners an idea of what it takes to do this kind of work. When did you first sort of get the idea that you wanted to create this kind of a trial? Um, we first wrote the uh, letter of intent for the trial, sort of the first concept for the trial in April of 2006. So that would be over five years ago. That's over five years ago. Oh, it seems like yesterday. Yes, and it's been uh, it's been open and closed and amended several times, um, and we're hoping it's finally going to open and start to recruit patients in the next month or two. That's great news, but it's yes. obviously you've been long in coming. Uh, I won't even ask you how many emails and versions, and uh, especially yes. with multi institutional <laughs> site. But I know it's been quite a tour de force on your your part. So congratulations on being sort of. Almost at the finish line of the start of the trial. Thank you. I'll take what I can get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That sounds like a theme for today. So, uh, Lars, thank you for being here. Sure. And Brian, thanks for being here. I think My it's pleasure. been a good discussion. For those of you listening, if you have questions about what we discussed today, feel free to email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Also, you can leave comments on iTunes. Uh, there are a couple comments there right now. One uh, congratulating us on launching the the podcast, and another asking us if we could have some discussions about rhabdomyosarcoma, so we'll definitely try to get around to uh, all of the different uh, diseases we see in pediatric oncology at ver various times, so appreciate uh, your feedback. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.